and start in verse 14, which, as you'll see in our comments shortly, is really the last verse of the first section of chapter 6. But I want to have that uh, much as the closing phrases of chapter 5 lead into the opening statement and exclamations of chapter 6. So this 14th verse, the conclusion of that part of this chapter, is what leads into another exclamation and the remainder of chapter 6. So beginning in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield ye your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We trust again the Lord's own blessing to be on the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's bow our heads together. And ask the Lord's help as we consider this portion of His Word today. Our Heavenly Father, we again pause and would be mindful that we're in Your presence. And we ask that You will give us something of the understanding, the testimony of John Newton that we've just sung. That each of us might, even in these moments... Have that question in our hearts and minds. What think ye of Christ? And we pray that you will give help both in preaching and hearing as we now would come and consider your word together. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we come today to the second half of Romans chapter 6, and We'll see in a few moments that there's actually a striking parallel construction in the first and the second halves of the chapter. All really are agreed that as you come to verse 15, a new section in this chapter begins. But I want for us to begin by reviewing the Apostles' main theme. Paul has furiously been refuting the suggestion that his doctrine of free justification leads to sin. Any hint of antinomianism's logic, and we talked a little bit about the logic of the question of verse 1, any hint of antinomianism's logic must arise from either partial or faulty information or from bad motives. And I want to take a few minutes as we begin today and address, well, mainly one of those, but both of them 
uh, at least by way of mention. The first is that of bad information. Now, I don't want to overly prolong this. This is kind of an extrapolation from just going through Romans 6. But it touches us where we live. It touches issues that have been very prominent in the church over these last several decades. And I think it's important that we understand and have a good grip on what those issues are. There are those that have engaged over the last, as I said, several decades in what's been called the Lordship Salvation Controversy among the Lord's people. It's in some ways an old news kind of thing. Uh, The dust is settled and you're either here, there, or the other place. Um, Different camps with regard to that question. Uh, The reason the question came up, in my opinion, was there were people in the broad-spectrum evangelical American churches that had a very weak understanding of the doctrine of salvation. They were all on the same page when it came to prophecy, but you had people that had different views of the gospel itself that were in the same churches. They were in the same Bible colleges. They were in the same institutions. And the doctrine of salvation... I like to phrase it, the details of the gospel had kind of gone out of style. He'd been so excited about prophecy, all the predictions and things that they were dealing with, and I'm not against studying prophecy, uh, but they lost grip of the gospel. And when those details of the gospel were neglected, fleshly thinking, the natural tendencies of that Arminian heart that dwells within us came really to dominate without being articulated. And an antinomian spirit began to spread in the churches. The easy believism. Raise your hand, walk the aisle, sign the card, whatever form of that easy believism it took. There were people, I'm generalizing this, trying to frame it together. There were people saved genuinely through these years. Don't get me wrong there. But there were also many that had gone through the hoops of the decision mills, as some have called them, in the evangelical churches, and yet their lives were unchanged. They were lost. But yet the church had told them they were converted. And one of the dangers, to me one of the the biggest dangers of the last century in American evangelical churches, has been that attempt without dealing with the details, the real questions of the details of the gospel, that attempt to merge together part of a reformed Calvinistic understanding of the gospel and an Arminian understanding of the gospel. And what evolved was a presentation of an Arminian gospel, man cooperating with God and his own salvation, consistent Arminianism teaching that, also teaches that man can uncooperate and lose his salvation. But the church began to teach an Arminian view of being saved. And then they added to that the Calvinistic doctrine, once you're saved, you can't lose it. And the frustrations that that brought in the hearts of sincere and godly people were great. And the dangers that it brought to those that were insincere and ungodly. And he came preaching to people that were genuinely lost 
and were telling them either by direct words or by implication that they were eternally secure and really saved. And they just needed to rededicate and the endless cycle of decisions that that brought were perilous times indeed. And I say in many circles still perilous for the church of our day. But I bring it up because it's so relevant to Romans 6. The non-lordship side of this debate is represented by such men as Charles Ryrie, and he's old news, I know. Zane Hodges, a Dallas professor at one point that uh, was of the same ilk, only a little stronger on the non-lordship side than Ryrie. I think maybe Curtis Hudson might have addressed this from the uh, independent Baptist side of the spectrum. And then John MacArthur was the champion of the lordship side and kind of started the whole thing when he looked at his peers and looked at the contemporary situation and said, what's going on? Telling people they can have Jesus as their Savior and not have Him as their Lord? Tell them they can be eternally secure of heaven and live like the devil? Where did this come from? MacArthur, and I'll just add this little footnote and try and put the brakes on after I say it, But all these questions came up within the dispensational part of the American church, which had become far and away the dominant part of the American church. The Reformed churches, still Bible-believing Reformed churches that hadn't caved to liberalism, they weren't debating this. Because in those circles, the details of the gospel are out front, got to have this. Prophecy, we can be on different pages on that and still be in the same church. But what had happened among dispensationalists is you got to be on the same prophecy page to be here, but we're not worried about the other stuff. You're saved by grace through faith. Well, the Pope can sign that. What do you mean by grace? What do you mean by faith? What about that word alone? Well, I introduced this longer than I sought to, but I want to put this before you. I pulled down, after some discussion and what I'd commented on last week, a couple of the books that were prominent in that debate a quarter of a century ago. And one of them that was arguing against the lordship side, um, arguing and bringing stuff that sounds good, because in that void with regard to the details of the gospel, There were people that were frustrated. Does my lifestyle, does how I live impact or determine my acceptance with God? And many embraced a a false understanding and looked at their life and looked at their works and said how imperfect my works are. I, I must not really be saved. And then... Some coming along trying to champion grace, saying, no, no, it's, salvation is completely free, totally free. Well, there's truth there, but how did they frame it? And I remember writing in the, the inside cover of one of these books after I'd finished the book, and I said, this person has argued, he didn't use this language, I crystallized it, put it in theological language. But I said, this book basically argues these two points. First, rightly, that my sanctification 
does not provide the ground of my justification. My works as a Christian, my good works after I've been saved, aren't what make me accepted with God. That's right. That's good. Now, this guy didn't frame it that way, but that's where he was heading. But secondly, he had argued wrongly, dangerously, that justified people may or may not ever become sanctified people. Now, a couple problems with that. Number one, that's not what the other side was saying. (laughs) That's not what the gospel says. But it, it sounds good. It sounds like it's promoting free grace, free justification. But the gospel, what Paul's teaching in Romans 6, what's found in our confession that makes great use of the truth of the spirituality of the law of God, of the law being a rule of life for God's people, contrary to antinomianism, against the law as a rule of life for God's people. No, the gospel teaches free justification. But I say it's only partial information. When you finish the syllogism and say, well, if justification's free, if it's based solely on Christ's work and nothing on my work, then it doesn't matter how I live. Number one, it does matter how you live because sanctification and ultimately glorification are the inevitable results of the many things God is doing in the lives of those that He justifies. Well, I know that's a long and Hope you didn't get lost in the introduction part of the message today. But it's a debate, I think, that has, in some ways, happily shown the confusion of many in the evangelical churches, but also sadly shown the weakness of those churches in our times. I said also that anyone that would argue against Paul's doctrine of free justification by saying it leads to sin. Well, it's either from bad information or from bad motives. The Jews that were Paul's detractors and trying to say, look, if you preach that, people are going to live wicked. Well, that's the same thing Roman Catholic detractors did to the Reformers. If you preach free justification, if you preach justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, then people will live loose. Well, that's, I say, bad information and bad doctrine. Those are people that supposedly say loose living isn't right. The bad motives people are the people that say loose living's fine. I remember Sinclair Ferguson and his treatment of the marrow controversy for many years ago now, but it's been converted to written form in a book, and if you're up for a suggestion for summer reading, uh, it's been out a few years now, but a book by him entitled The Whole Christ is really a fleshed out written version of those three hours of lectures that have blessed my soul and many other souls so many times. Ferguson, going through the different forms of antinomianism, spoke of this one. 
people that really want to have a gospel that justifies them and doesn't change their lives. After some very long explanations of the doctrinal nuances of the other forms of antinomianism, said this form is sheer wickedness. He was done at that point. Well, that is Paul here dealing with this suggestion that a doctrine of free justification leads to sin. I want to come today to what Paul has put before us in this second half of Romans chapter 6. What Paul has said so far in the first half of the chapter is that we died to sin in Christ. This isn't a command that he puts before us as only some Christians fulfilling and reaching that better level of Christianity. No, this isn't a command. This is a statement of something that is true of all Christians. And we saw last time that much of our motivation and power in walking in newness of life, as it's phrased, stems then from a proper understanding of our position in Christ. Last week we looked at those three giant terms, knowing, reckoning, and yielding. The only way we're going to have success and power in yielding ourselves unto God, yielding our members as instruments of righteousness instead of instruments of unrighteousness, is reckoning upon a gospel that we know. And so here, Paul, I say, has taken that first half of the chapter to refute this antinomian spirit by putting before us again what it means to be in Christ, to be in union with Christ. Today we move, if we might say, to Paul's second volley in this debate. And we come on to the question now of this connection between free justification and godly living. But I want you to come with me to look at verse 14 and 15. Because as we said, this chapter clearly has two sections. They're parallel greatly. Paul has said in closing the fifth chapter, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did superabound, as we said, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, that amazing statement of the reign of grace has brought forth the question, what shall we say then? Well, notice what we have in verse 14 and 15. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? And if you look in verse 14 and 15, and in verses 1, 2, and 3, there are five parallels I quickly put before you. Both of these questions, both of these sections, are prompted by the exaltation of the grace of the gospel. The reign of grace. Not being under the law, but under grace. So both of them, I say, stem from an exaltation of grace. Secondly, both of them ask the same probing question. Shall we continue in sin? He says in verse 1. Shall we sin? Verse 15. Thirdly, both react to the question indignantly. God forbid. May it never be. Translators really come to be at a loss at times to Put forth the strength of this negation. Absolutely not. Perish the thought. God forbid. Both, I say, react to the question indignantly. Fourthly, both of them trace the question back to ignorance. Know ye not 
We've been baptized into Christ. Know ye not, verse 16, to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are. That's what we look at today. Fifthly, both then teach the radical discontinuity between our pre-conversion life and our new life. So I say it's clear that when we look at verse 14 and 15, verses 1, 2, and 3, that Paul's just going back and he's looking at the same question from another direction. He's giving it another illustration. Firstly, and that's not an illustration, it's a declaration. Same with the second. Um, We're united to Christ. We're baptized into Christ. This is the foundation of new life. Our standing is going to produce a new state. And we speak of that in the terms of justification and sanctification. But now he comes to an illustration drawn from the realm, and it's again not really an illustration. I keep using a word that doesn't apply to the truth of servanthood. And I want today to look at this second half of the chapter, the close of chapter 6, and just make three statements to you that based on this theme of the second part of the chapter, that we are servants of righteousness. Servants of righteousness. As I said, three statements just to put before you and then hopefully draw from these verses that he has before us. Firstly, we are all servants to something. Or to someone. We are all servants to something. Paul here is really doing the same as our Lord did in his own earthly ministry. Christ said, he that's not with me is against me. There's no neutral ground in this war. There's no people that are not on one side or the other. And here it's looked at from the terminology of being a servant. Christ also said, you can't serve two masters. That kind of gets back to what we've dealt with along the way in chapter 6 of being dead to sin. We've been taken out of the realm, that kingdom dominated by sin and placed in a new kingdom. We're subjects, citizens of a new king. But I say we're all servants to something. If you remember back, and I quote from this often, I've preached it often elsewhere, but message we preached here a lot of years ago now on idolatry under that catchy title. Now, what was a catchy title? It's supposed to make a sermon easy to remember. Um, yeah, why every Christian should believe in many gods. Look that one up. You'll find it under my name on Sermon Audio about 28 times. I don't know, something like that. I've preached it everywhere. But how do we open that and deal with that theme that faces us every day? We're all worshipers. We're all worshipers. What does Paul say in Romans 1? And that's where I go in the first point of that sermon that goes a lot of different places. In the fall, 
And man's coming into his sinful state in the first man, Adam, and that death passing upon all men. What happens to men when they suppress the truth? When they reject God? Do they stop worshiping Him and then just go on their merry way and cease being worshipers? No. Paul's told us plainly. We see it plainly in our lives every day. When men cease worshiping and obeying and following the true God, they start worshiping and following and obeying something else. They worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. But they don't stop worshiping. They don't stop seeking worth and value and fulfillment from something. Well, that's just another aspect, another facet of this one stone. All men are servants. We're all servants to something. And we're going to talk a little bit in a moment about the whole question of servanthood and servitude. But I say, let's just hammer down firmly but quickly this first point. We are all servants to something. Paul doesn't here give a third option. You're made free from sin and now you're on your merry way. You, you don't have to follow Jesus. You just know. He doesn't say that while you are a servant of sin, you can come out of that servitude and cease being a servant and just be an independent man. Do your own thing. Not be told what to do by anybody. It's just simply not true. We're all servants to something. We're all servants to someone. So I want to come quickly to our second thought. Servants willingly give themselves to their masters. Servants willingly give themselves to their masters. Read with me verse 16. Know ye not. Here's that ignorance that is going to produce that misunderstanding of Paul's doctrine. And he's challenging them again to know this. Know ye not that to whom... Ye yield yourselves servants to obey. His servants ye are to whom ye obey. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So I say secondly, servants willingly give themselves to their masters. Now this brings up a topic that frankly we can't exhaust today. But there's a piece of it that I want us to to dwell on. Scripture speaks about us as bondservants of Jesus Christ. It is a common phrase and description in Paul's writings. Um, But you find in a lot of preaching, and I'm not being overly critical of this preaching here, but the whole idea of being a slave. Men are, when they're lost, they're slaves to sin. And when they get saved, now they're slaves to God. Now, it's true. But I think the implications, the the picture that it puts into our minds at times is a little skewed. There are different kinds of servitude. 
And it is true that there is a servitude, there is a slavery that is compulsory, that is cruel. And we might even say that that applies to the servants of sin. There's another kind of slavery that isn't of that nature. It's certainly not cruel. And really, that's the the image of the bond servant. If you go back to Deuteronomy, where Paul drives that language and that emblem, it's a picture of a servant, a Hebrew servant that is brought into the property, if you will, of the other Hebrew, and serves him, he said, for six years, because God had limits among his own people, what type of servitude a man could be brought under. And it always had an end. But there was an occasion that Moses, that the Lord through Moses puts before the people, where a man that was a servant to another man and and finished the six years of the obligation, however that obligation came to be framed, where he was to be released. He's to be set free to go wherever he will. And he was to be set free with property, part of the herd. Part of the belongings of the house went with him when he went. But there was a prospect that a servant like that might have been so happy in that home that he said to his master, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. And in that case, a servant, they said, would stand by the door and The master would take an awl and pierce his ear. And he he was a bondservant for that one that he loved. And so it wasn't a cruel bondage. It was a happy, willing, lifetime connection to this master and this home that he cherished. And there are other aspects of servanthood. Positions of honor. Look at Abraham's servant Eliezer. Abraham esteemed him so highly that if an an heir wasn't forthcoming, well, he's the guy. And you see what honor, what esteem Eliezer had for Abraham in that precious story of him being sent to secure a bride for Isaac. And so we don't have to look at servitude as a cruel, unwilling bondage. And I think sometimes when that transition is made and we we talk about men being the slaves of sin and then slaves to Jesus, well, I say it's true. But yet, what's true about it? Well, that's an incomplete, improper survey of some pretty big stuff that's even being discussed in scholarly realms in recent years. But I come back to our point. Servants willingly give themselves to their masters. You see that bondservant that wanted to remain with the master that he loved because obviously that master loved him. But think about the willingness. I've applied it 
on the, the good side, the gospel side, the desire to be with Jesus, the desire to serve Jesus. Think of the willing slave on the other side. The slave that gives himself to the dominance of sin. What's going on there? Well, you might say, well, sin's fun. Pleasures of sin for a season. And there's certainly that aspect of men that give themselves, that yield their members as instruments of unrighteousness. But in their willingness, it's not only those temporary pleasures that are a piece of it. Can I submit to you there's a deception that is at the root of it. Sin, and we trace it back to the original liar, the deceiver, the archenemy of our souls, the devil, who would deceive those that we read elsewhere are taken captive by him at his will. He deceives them that the end of that path that the the blessings of that servitude are going to work out fine for him. But what do we read? What do we read? What is the end of these things? Let me come quickly to our third statement. We're all servants to something, to someone. Servants willingly give themselves to their masters. Huge topic. We've just touched it today. But thirdly, masters pay their servants. Masters pay their servants. And we'll have to tweak that when we come to our conclusion. But Paul calls his readers to consider the fruit, the payment of their servitude. And I want you to look with me at verse 21. Romans is a book that has a lot of memory verses in it. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, our last verse for today, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.28, All things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Great memory verses. Huge, giant texts in Romans. Not playing them down at all. I'm just saying that I think Romans 6.21 is a giant memory verse that just doesn't get enough playtime. Think of that question. I ask you as a believer, as Paul does to his Roman readers, I ask you here today, if you're outside of Christ, to think about the implications of this verse. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you're now ashamed? Now, you can think of that question without Paul's answer that he supplies. But he goes ahead and gives you the answer. If you don't think about it enough... If you don't think it through rightly, what fruit had ye then in those things wherever you're now ashamed? What payment has that master given you? The end of those things is death. 
Now, obviously, this brings us, for those that are lost, to final, ultimate death and damnation. The full experience, the eternal experience of death in all of its ramifications. But I say this is a great verse to even give motivation in this life. What fruit had you then in those things wherever you're now ashamed? What fruit does sin bring? I grew up in the 60s, 70s. Peace and love. Man, you could print those in big squirrely letters that didn't have any gaps between them and all kind of graffiti. Where's free love brought our culture? How many people have a romantically, sexually fulfilled life in our world today? Percentage is really small. Now they're busy trying. What fruit? Where does it lead? What's it bringing? How's that working out? People that are still deceived, blind, will try and paint for you a picture that, yeah, it's great. Really. Believer, you can find it throughout the Psalms. You're tempted. The world puts that shiny, bright object in front of you. Oh, that'd be great. Here's a great verse. What fruit had you then in those things? Where's that going? What's that ultimately going to pay me? Or what am I going to wind up paying it? Masters pay their servants. We're all servants to something. We just need to be connected to the right master. And here's where I say my title, my last statement to you is is not really that great. Masters pay their servants. Because as we read the last verse of the chapter, one of those verses that does get a lot of airtime. Well, let's review the familiar. For the wages of sin is death. Wages, I'm sure many of you have heard, it's often used in the context of a soldier's pay. It'd be the, the burn money that soldiers were given to entertain themselves, provide for themselves while they were in service along the way. The wages of sin is death. As Satan and your flesh and the world would deceive you, and with your broken, fallen 
carnal nature and dead heart, you willingly follow that path of sin and yield yourself as a servant of sin. The end of that, as James phrases it, sin when it's finished brings forth death. That's the pay of being in servitude to sin. But here's where the parallel falls. Because we don't read the wages of sin is death, but the wages of living right is eternal life. It isn't wages. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those that yield themselves and yield their members as instruments of righteousness. Those that cease being servants of sin and become, as we've said and seen so highlighted in our text today, servants to righteousness. We're the recipients of life. We personally deserve and earned eternal death and alienation from God. And for no other purpose than the good pleasure of His sovereign, gracious, loving will. He's dealt with Jesus the way we deserve to be dealt with. That He might, based on that payment of what we owed, give us eternal life. Here is a Master Worthy to be followed. Because He doesn't deceive His servants. And the end of their path of deception and sin isn't as the others. Eternal death. Oh, He freely bestows life and gives Himself. Gives His kingdom. Gives His Son. And we, as that servant of old say, I want to stay here. This is life. This is eternal life. This is that which I was made for. This is what brings everlasting joy and love and peace. Not the fake stuff of the deceiver. So Paul, I say, comes ferociously attacking that false antinomian doctrine. And he approaches it here in this second half of Romans 6 by teaching us plainly we're all servants to something. Servants willingly give themselves to their masters. Masters pay their servants Well, in the case of the servants of God, here's a master that freely gives what we don't deserve. Here's a master worthy to serve. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Lord, today we come pray that long after the Echo of the words of a preacher are gone from our ears. That the living word 
of the God of heaven. The little pieces of it that we have read today and even a little phrase like that opening phrase of verse 21. What fruit had ye then? That they might find a place to stay in our hearts. And that by your spirit you might work life in any that are still outside of Christ. And Lord, you might stir in us that are already alive a greater joy in serving Jesus. We ask and pray these things in the worthy name of our Savior and our King. Amen.